0: That can be found on 1096 of the Pew Bible. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did too the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when the, all people speak well of you, For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, an athlete once had a mantra that would encourage him in his training. Suffer now, and I will live the rest of my life as a champion. In this mantra, there is a present reality of suffering, and there is a future reality as life as a champion. See, for this athlete, his present reality of suffering was bearable because of the future reality that awaited him. And as Christians, we can wrestle with the same question. Can we be patient and endure suffering? Or is the suffering too great, allured by the false promise of contentment the world offers? So we sell our birthright for a bowl of stew. Our theme this morning as we examine Scripture is Jesus explains the realities and the future expectations for following him. We see the blessings and the woes, point number one, and point number two, Rejoice and be glad. Jesus lifts his eyes on his disciples and starts his address. And we can ask the question, I think it's proper to ask this question, who is this intended address for? Is Jesus specifically addressing his disciples, or is it everyone within earshot? Because we can see from verse 17 that a great crowd has surrounded Jesus, We also see from the text that in verse 19, that group sought to touch Jesus. So it's safe to assume that this crowd was coming up and close and personal with Jesus. Now, this text does not distinguish, though, the you in verse 20 from the you in verse 24. So we cannot say that the blessings were for the disciples, but the woes then for the larger crowd, As Luke also indicates in verse 27 that Jesus turns his attention away from the disciples to all who can hear. So if the blessings and woes are for the disciples, it is not unlikely that Jesus could then be using this opportunity to explain the reality of what is taking place and pointing them to future realities and a proper response to their sufferings while also warning them about finding their fulfillment in the things of the world, those finite and temporal things. So Jesus looks to his disciples and explains the future reality of the poor. Jesus explains to his disciples that the poor are blessed. And blessed in the ancient world is this expressing happy and untroubled state that who are generally free from care. And if that is our working definition, how can the poor, who have to beg, who are completely poverty-stricken, who are oppressed and cast down by those who are in a position of power and of privilege, how can they be blessed? See, the poor are blessed. They're happy and in an untroubled state because their reality is the kingdom of God. See, the verb tense is present. The kingdom of God is the reality that they are experiencing now. All the blessings are in future tense. Something that they will encounter later. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is now. It's their reality. See, the poor are the very class that Jesus came to preach to. The people of God, as Paul puts it, were never wise according to worldly standards nor powerful or of noble birth see god chose what was low and what was despised in the world he chose the poor they hope and rely on the promise of god finding their fulfillment in the anointed one of god and then jesus christ is that anointed one remember what jesus says in luke 4:18 As he opens the scroll, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He is the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 61. The poor, those socially oppressed, suffering from the power of injustice, harassed by the powerful and the privileged, yet at the same time remain faithful to God. Experiencing salvation only from the kingdom of God. It is now and it is their reality. See, the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom is theirs because of Jesus Christ. See, the poor who have carried the promise salvation in their heart, they get to see the one who came to rescue them. Jesus Christ, their anointed one. As Jesus pivots from the poor to show those who can relate to the poor, those who are hungry. The poor people of God who hope in his promises also hunger after him. Scripture draws illustrations of people of God hungering for him. Psalm 42, verse 1 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Or Psalm one hundred and forty. Three, verse six. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. We understand also that man is not to live by bread alone. Jesus understood that his food was to do the will of the Father who sent him. Not only was there a hunger after the things of God, there is a spiritual thirst for righteousness. But there is also physical hunger. Hunger experienced. They experienced famine. And unlike the kingdom of God, this is the first that accompanies a future blessing and not a present reality. Their hunger will be satisfied at a future date. We can think of the great wedding banquet that's satisfied with the food being served, but also the experience of fellowship with God, fulfilled both in our bodies and our souls. See, hunger for food and righteousness is something the disciples were experiencing. And so too will be their sorrow as they weep, experiencing mourning and grief of all kinds. Sorrow for their sin, we can think of Peter. Mourning for the sins of their people, but also sorrow for being persecuted and for suffering the pain of injustice. Yet the weeping now transforms into everlasting joy, as those who sow in tears will reap in shouts. Of joy Because God will wipe away all our tears, there will be no more tears, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Just as Job explains, He will fill our mouths with laughter and our lips with shouting. But until then, Jesus warns the disciples of the hate, the revile and the slander that will come to them on account on the name. Of the Son of Man. See, Jesus explains that being followers of His will incur this type of evil. Not only will they be poor, will they be hungry, will they weep, they will be hated. Hated by those that are opposed to the things of God, excluded, maybe thrown out of the synagogue, or exclusion from associating with certain types of people, forced out of work relationships. And they will attack their name. Face-to-face insults. Attacking the name is like a strike to the very being of that person. See, Jesus is painting a picture for his disciple, a picture of total rejection. Oppression that comes because of a commitment to Jesus, something that is already starting to take place in Jesus' ministry. Luke 6, 11 we read, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. And this is nothing new with Jesus as it was nothing new with the Old Testament prophets. Just as Jesus warned, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. But in the blessings, we always we get to see also the heart of, and the wisdom of Jesus. He's saying to his disciples, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're going to have to experience. I know you are poor. I know you are hungry. I know you will weep. I know you will incur all sorts of hatred on account of my name. But there's hope. See, he focuses their eyes on what will come. And Jesus does not leave them without anything, but he shows to them what their present reality is. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ is here, the anointed one of God. The only thing that the disciples needed is what Jesus reveals to them, that the kingdom of God is their present reality. And this is good news for the disciples. That salvation is here. That sin will be atoned for and there will be reconciliation. A return back into the family of God and the promise of future glory. And this is why Jesus can say to the hungry and to those who weep and those who are hated because of his name, there is a more fantastic day coming. What you lack now will be fulfilled in that future day of glory because Jesus Christ is their guarantee. Jesus can promise because he is the fulfillment of the ultimate promise. He is the guarantee. And we have the privilege of seeing that guarantee as a fulfillment of a promise more clearly brought about. See, Christ has atoned for sin and conquered death. He has ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit of the Son has been given to us, and we have been reconciled into the family of God. So just like the disciples, He is our guarantee. He's our guarantee. Not how well you managed your sufferings. So we wait with patience. For that future day of glory where we no longer hunger and our tears are turned into joy. And not only does Jesus Christ know what his disciples are going to have to endure, he knows what we all have to endure. He knows the potential pitfalls of the temptations of this world. See, Jesus flips the paradigm. In the blessings, the ones without become the ones who are satisfied. And in the woes, the ones who have in abundance find themselves lacking. Jesus starts his warning by saying, Woe to the rich. And commentators are quick to point out that in the Gospel of Luke, a common theme is attack against the rich. And it's for good reason. Elsewhere in Scripture, there are warnings about money being the root of all evil. It's more likely for a camel to go through the eye of the needle Than enter into the kingdom of God. Or we can think of the foolishness of the landowner who built bigger barns and when he achieved his contentment, finally rested, only to have his life required of him that night. See, it's foolishness to trust in riches because God is sovereign over all, even our bank accounts. See, trials and tribulations can come that empty every penny. Or, like in the parable, your retirement is built up only to have your life required of you that night. And what does it say about our view of God if we trust in our riches? It turns God into an impotent God. So you're effectively saying that the God, the one who can speak everything into existence, the one by the power of his breath who gave life, but He is a God that cannot touch our bank account. It's an improper view of the power and of the reach of God. It is all his to begin with. And he can do with it what he pleases. See, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. See, Judas was there for that talk with Jesus. Probably made even eye contact with Jesus, yet he failed To listen to Jesus. He sought riches instead of Jesus Christ. He looked for instant gratification instead of waiting for those riches in heaven. So you need to listen to Christ and grasp his warnings. Judas, a disciple, failed to do so. You need to listen to Jesus Christ. It's not about being around his words, but grasping onto them planting them deep in your heart, trusting in them, living them out. See, instant gratification only sometimes comes in the form of riches. It comes to us in other ways, as Jesus said, woe to those who are full and laugh now. Now, full does not mean in the narrowest sense full from food, but it means there is a general contentment with the things of the world. And laughter means joy, but also a laughter of contempt and scorn and disrespect. The warning is to those who indulge in the pleasures of life that that is their chief aim, pleasure and enjoyment. No desire to help fellow man, only my happiness and my fulfillment. They're eating, drinking, and being merry for tomorrow, they die. It's short-sighted, living for the moment because of the moment is all they have. It's nothing more than temporal pleasures of this short life. And they are correct, as Paul explains, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, because there's nothing else beyond the grave. But, Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. He conquered death, So for Christians, we die to ourselves and tomorrow we will eat, drink, and be merry. The last woe Jesus warns about are the pitfalls of people-pleasing, seeking approval of man over the approval of God, like the false prophets in the Old Testament that tickled the ears of the people around them, attempting to maintain the reputation among men. Woe to them because whoever finds a friend of the world is at enmity with God, See, false prophets only tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Hell is not a real place. There's no resurrection of the dead. There's more than one way to God. You find what the best path is for you. God does not care how you worship him, only that you love him. See, when we forget the words of Jesus, we're confused about the things that are lies and what is the truth. Those false prophets are only worried about their status among men, tickling the ears so they can gain approval. And they disregard the wrath of God. And now, so there's no confusion. The woes do not mean that Christians cannot have money, be well-fed, laugh, or be well-spoken of. The warning is to those who are putting their trust in external things and not in faith in Jesus Christ, who cultivate comfort in things of the world rather than finding their comfort in Jesus Christ. And not only does Jesus Christ show us the present reality of the kingdom of God, but he also shows us future blessings and warnings of the pitfalls. He also guides our response. Not only does Christ guide the eyes of the disciple, he teaches them the proper response to the present world's suffering. See, Jesus commands his disciples to rejoice and leap for joy. Jesus explains to his disciples the proper response to these struggles and temptations of being a disciple. Now, this is not a suggestion only to do when you have enough energy or strength or a proposal that it's a good piece of advice and for your consideration. No, this is a command by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rejoice and leap for joy in your sufferings. See, there's force behind the command. There's an urgency in the imperative of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, do this now. Not when you feel like it. Not when you have the energy. Do this now. Now, because Jesus Christ knows the heart, and not only the heart of his disciples, but he knows the heart of all his sheep. He knows there will be grumbling, pouting, those internal pity parties, as we look inward and wonder why this is happening to us. See, the command is not to navel gaze, but to rejoice and leap for joy. And this command is not a do as I say, but not as I do. See, Jesus Christ has gone through them too. Thinking to yourself, maybe fullness now is way better than hunger. I do not have the patience to endure this suffering. See, Jesus Christ can sympathize. He could have taken the shortcut and bowed the knee to Satan, and received an authority and glory, a counterfeit authority and glory. Instead, he endured looking to the promise of future glory, suffered the shame and humiliation of the cross, and now sits at the right hand of God, where all kingdoms of this world will be put under his feet, where every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, he knows what it means to be patient to the fullest extent of the word. And we can be thankful because the same patience that's used for him in his suffering is the same patience he used to endure your sin. But why do Christians rejoice and leap for joy? How does someone suffering poverty being beaten down by the world, someone enduring hunger pains, someone who weeps and mourns, someone who is hated on account of the name of Jesus Christ, how can they rejoice and leap for joy? Because all Christians are running the same race. The same race that was run by all those who came before you. On the same track, running for the same reward. There is something that awaits us from when we finish our race, something that is imperishable, something everlasting, something that no eye has seen and no mind of man has conceived, an inheritance that is undefiled, that's unfading, and kept for you in heaven, where no moth can where no moth or rust or thieves will be. You have something more excellent than all the treasures of the world waiting for you for you. There's no real value of the things of the world. They're just tools to do kingdom work. It's like keeping your tool belt on at the end of the day. When you have entered your home for rest, the tool belt is no longer necessary because you have entered rest. And you will enter that rest. You obtain an inheritance because Jesus Christ obtained it for you. You are not receiving your reward because how well you manage your poverty, your hunger, your sorrow, or by how much the world hates you, reviles you, and slanders your name. These are not the object of our faith. You do not look to these things and say, I am a Christian because I am poor, because I am hungry, because the world hates me. See, the world might hate you because you are mean, Unpleasant, rude, and unkind. Those are not characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. It is because He felt the weight of all your sins, suffered, and died for you, reconciled us to the Father, and now we are adopted as sons. And as heirs with Jesus Christ, share in the reward. Our union with Jesus Christ is what makes us Christian. Because by faith in him, and only in him, we share in his anointing, we confess his name, and present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. And when we are finished our race, we will reign with Christ. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus illustrates for us the path of sacrifice and patience a path that he himself walked and he can help you along your way he knows your needs he knows your struggles as you walk the path of sacrifice as you try to do it with patience see in christ's compassion for you not only does he focus your gaze on heavenly things he explains the proper response to these difficulties. Rejoice and leap for joy. Be glad in your sufferings because you have a future glory, a future of total satisfaction and communion with God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you, Lord, that Jesus in more ways than one was a perfect example, but even more, Lord, that he was our Savior, that he came to do what we are unable to do, and we can look to him for our strength and for our wisdom. Father, that you give to us so many riches and blessings through your blessed Son. We'd ask you now that you would give us a rich measure of patience, Lord, as we endure the sufferings of this world, but that also cultivate in our heart a future desire, a future desire for that glory, that we may be with Christ and worship you for all eternity. Through his name we pray. Amen. Our hymn.